Oh, boy. Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Rob, in case you don't know me. Um, I'm the senior pastor here, and it's my joy and privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. Um, if you would, turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, Colossians 4, and you can find it on page 985. There's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and you just flip to page 985, and you'll be with us in the text this morning. Everyone have a nice Thanksgiving? Yeah? Who ate too much? Good. It's the one day where gluttony is not a sin, so (laughs) enjoy. Rome was probably the greatest city Paul had ever seen. It must have been beautiful. In ancient times, the city boasted a population of a million, but if you counted the slaves, it was some two and a half million people. Between the seven hills, there were wide gardens and luxurious villas. Below Nero's palace on the Palatine, a large ornamental lake was being excavated for his pleasure. It was where the Colosseum now stands. But Paul probably had little opportunity to see the public buildings and all the grandeur. You see, he had come to Rome with a group of convicted felons. Most of the prisoners were being prepared to go die in some barbarous torture in the Circus Maximus. But Paul, he was sent to live in custody in a house rented at his own cost. Situation couldn't have been easy. Yes, Rome was a great city, but it was also a loud city. And the stench. Even in the winter, that city stunk During the summer, malaria was a constant cause of concern. And probably worst of all, though, was the never-ending presence of a soldier. You see, Paul was chained to a soldier 24-7. And he lived like that for two years. I wonder what the soldiers must have thought as they looked at this little man use his powerful presence there in Rome. Almost from the first moment of captivity, Paul was having people over to that little house. In fact, he wasn't a prisoner in the classic sense. He could invite anyone he wished. So he invited many people, and they talked often about this little-known criminal who was crucified, Jesus Now, it probably wasn't the first time that these soldiers had heard of Jesus. There were Christians in Rome before Paul had come. But it must have all just seemed incredulous. Why talk about this known name from an unknown town called Nazareth? But they would have gotten their questions answered quickly with Paul. You see, Paul was constantly witnessing, constantly equipping saints. He was praying. He probably, in the quiet moments, turned to the soldiers and shared the gospel with them too. No one left that hired house untouched, even if it was over a robust argument on theology. It had an atmosphere of happiness. There was music and singing. Paul was in chains, but he never let the chains chain his heart. He never grew bitter or hardened. They watched him dictate three or four letters from that little house, one to a church 
in Ephesus, another to a, a, a man named Philemon. Another went to the city called Philippi. And then there was this letter to this little podunk town that no one cares about called Colossae. As Paul dictated the letter to Colossae, he made the strangest personal request. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I mean, what a strange request. He didn't pray for the doors of the house to fly wide open so that he could escape. I mean, common criminals were always frantically writing letters to everyone to try to find a political way out, but not Paul. He was worried about the door to the human heart being opened. And so instead of praying, God, let me go, he prayed joyfully about his circumstances. I imagine one of two things happened with those soldiers. Either one, they trusted Jesus, or two, they were scratching their heads. This morning, we are concluding our series, Who is Jesus? And I've told you about these circumstances with Paul because I want you to keep these in mind as we make our way through this text. It greatly enhances what Paul has to say about prayer and witnessing. Remember last week, we talked to uh, prayer, how to talk to God about people. Well, this week, we're going to look at prayer again. And we're going to spend a little more time there. And then we're going to move into witnessing how to talk to people about God. So let's go back to that idea, how to talk to God about people. And I'm concerned with the matter of God, prayer, and circumstances. I want you to consider these words about prayer. Once you start praying, there is no guarantee that you won't find yourself before Pharaoh shipwrecked on a desert island or in a lion's den. Awful things happen to people who pray. Their plans are frequently disrupted. They end up in strange places. Abraham went out not knowing where he would go. After Mary's magnificent prayer at the Annunciation, she finds herself the pariah of Nazareth society. How tempting it is to make prayer merely another consumer product. Is prayer worth it? When you consider the things that occur when you pray, is it worth praying? In fact, as you read this letter, you would expect Paul to say, don't pray. Every time someone prays uh, about me advancing the gospel, something terrible happens. Shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonment, mockery. But he believed that prayer was worth it. And so he asked this church to pray. Why? I think we can see a couple of important lessons about God, prayer, and circumstances here. One of the lessons we can learn is this, that in prayer, God promises to never leave us or forsake us. If someone tells you that God promises only blessings in this life, don't listen to them. They are misreading the biblical message in a dangerous way. You see, God does not promise to protect us from painful or unjust experiences if we follow Jesus. In fact, in this letter, Paul is saying it's precisely because I've been obeying Jesus that I am in chains. He is chained at the leg because he loved Jesus. He has lost his freedoms, his privileges, his reputation, all because he refused to keep Jesus to himself 
But here's the comfort in thought in the midst of it. God never asks you to face the situation alone. He is always walking with us in them. It's as if when we go into the pit, Jesus goes into the pit with us. And you have the overwhelming reassurance that there is nothing in the world that we could do to, or that could happen to us or that we could do that could take God's love away from us. I mean, that's a beautiful promise from the scriptures. And I would encourage you on your own time to go look up Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and onward. And Paul gives you a very clear sense of that truth. A second lesson that we learn is that God promises to strengthen us during difficult circumstances. James tells us to be happy when hard things happen. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, crazy, right? Crazy talk. Be happy when hard things are happening to you. Why? Well, James says that on the other side of that dark road is God's blessing. You see the world in a different way. You see how God operates in this world in a new and profound way. And you mature. You become more like Jesus. The third lesson, God promises that there is something better than comfort and ease. You know, the, the common mantra today, the biggest lie that we're told is that life is about finding easy street. They say something like this, do whatever it takes to find the life of ease and comfort and relaxation, beautiful views, fine foods, good laughs, no problems. This is what makes a good life. This is what it's all about. But I tell you, when people find easy street, they're not so happy when they land there. Paul gladly faced prison because he knew something was more important than physical comfort and freedom of movement. Something mattered more than convenience and ease and personal peace or security. I love the words that he uh, tells us in Philippians 3 verse 8. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now that word that Paul uses there in Philippians, rubbish, is the Greek word skubalon. It means filth, waste, but particularly it means animal droppings. So before Paul knew Jesus, he came from the best of the best kind of stock. He had everything, credentially speaking, that you would want in this world. And he says, by way of comparison, as he's rotting in chains next to a guard, that that former life was a big pile of poop. His words, not mine. It's amazing when you think about prayer that you are inviting into one of the most important conversations, in fact, the most important conversation of all time, how to reach the world for Christ. I think of it like being invited into an Oval Office discussion. You know, if the president were to call you and say, come and consult me on a matter, you wouldn't say, no, 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 Mr. President, I've got Monday night football. I've got something better going on. No, you would say, Mr. President, I might not have much to contribute to this conversation, but I'll be right there. 
when prayer, when you're praying about the world, God is inviting you to pray about his most important mission. How much more worthy of our life is God's purposes for this world? Fourthly, we see that God promises to work through your circumstances. What happened when Paul was in prison? People came to know Jesus. In fact, more people came to know Jesus. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Sam Storm says this, reverse events that from a human perspective seem to be obstacles of defeat are by divine providence transformed into instruments of victory. Or again, human setbacks are gloriously changed into divine setups. I think of this when I think of the cultural revolution of China. When Chairman Mao ejected Christian missionaries from China amid the Cultural Revolution, it was believed that that would snuff Christianity out entirely from this country. In 1949, there was just one million Protestant Christians in all of China. However, since the death of Chairman Mao, the gospel has spread like wildfire in that country. In 2010, there were more than 58 million Protestants in China compared to 40 million in Brazil and 36 million in South Africa. One professor, a leading expert on religion in China, projects that the number will be around 160 million in 2025, which will surpass the current U.S. Protestant population. And by 2030, the total Christian population of China, that's counting all denominations, all affiliations of China will soar to 247 million, making it the most Christianized country in the world. One follower of Christ in China, Jing Hangjing, stated, it is a wonderful thing to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It gives us great confidence. If everyone in China believed in Jesus, then we would have no more need for police stations. How is this possible? I mean, when you're listening to a statistic like that, you're just like, oh, wow, that's a wonderful thing. No, that's an amazing thing. And we were talking about a country that has literally been turned upside down for the gospel. How is that possible? Well, we worship an impossible God. We worship a God who knows no limits. Now here, connect the dots, which means that when you pray to this God, prayer knows no limits. Here is a powerful and arresting thought. God can use our prayers to open doors for others. You can open doors for me, and I can open doors for you as we pray for one another. You might be a thousand miles from where I am, But if you pray for me while I'm doing ministry here on Cape Cod and I pray for you while you're doing ministry wherever you are, God will work. Prayer is not limited. It's not limited by setbacks. It's not limited by location. It's not limited by separation. God can use any prayer at any time to accomplish his will anywhere. And this means that we can be praying global prayers, prayers that literally reach around the world. During my first year of seminary, I saw a powerful demonstration of God's ability to use any prayer, any time to accomplish his will anywhere. 
I joined a team of students to a missionary trip to India, and we were there for three weeks. It was in the month of December. So I had a Christmas day like none other. On Christmas Day, our group was scheduled in the afternoon to go to a little village to pray over a local pastor's house, and we gathered, and as we were praying over the house, that house was then surrounded by everyone in that village. They were coming and asking for prayer. If I could have closed my eyes and looked at the situation, I would have thought I was back in the Galilean countryside, just surrounded by masses of people who had need. Well, This might surprise you, but I don't speak a lick of Hindi. And so I had to operate through a a translator to ask for prayer requests. And so I asked one woman who approached me, well, how can I pray for you? And as the translator listened to her, he seemed a little concerned. And he said, she's possessed by demons. What? Now, This little Chicago boy has seen some weird things in his day. But I have never met someone who has been possessed by a demon before. I mean, my mind was completely blown in this moment. I later find out that this woman had become demon-possessed after the death of her husband. She had invited an evil spirit to take um, residence in her. And she had been oppressed by this demon for years. She had gone to the local Hindu temple and she had asked them to help her. So what did they do? They beat her with shoes because, you know, logically, if you want a demon to leave someone, you just whack it out of them. Didn't work. So two of us laid hands on her and we began to pray. Now I had no idea what to say in this moment, so I just started saying, Jesus, please help Sometimes that's all you know what to say. The more we prayed, the more the demon started taking control of her. It began with excessive tears down her face. Then she began rotating in circles. And finally, the demon seized her completely, threw her to the ground, and she started convulsing in every which direction. Now, I am a Baptist through and through. But in that moment, my inner Pentecostal came out. We started screaming frantically for Jesus to come and save this woman. And it seemed like an eternity because we just kept crying out and crying out and she kept shaking and shaking when suddenly the demon left her. One of the pastors said, listen, someone must share the gospel with her or else this could happen to her again. And so for 15 minutes, one of the local pastors told her about the gospel of grace. And she trusted Jesus Christ that day as her Lord and Savior. I heard five years later that she was still attending a local church and she has never had troubles with a demon again. But here's where my point comes in. The next day I called Katie to tell her the story. And as I started telling Katie the story, My mom was sitting in the back of the room and she asked Katie, wait, you're saying all of this happened yesterday? And Katie said, yes. My mom said, well, what time? When did this happen? So I told her that it was at 2 p.m. yesterday. Now the time difference between Chicago and New Delhi is 12 and a half hours. So mom quickly did the math and Katie said she just broke out in goosebumps. You see, that night, the Spirit of God woke her up from her sleep and impressed on her heart 
pray for protection. Pray for protection against the evil one. God can use any prayer at any time to accomplish his will anywhere. One pastor wrote these words, by prayer we may change the world. From our knees we can impact distant lands. We may never preach, but our prayers may make the preaching of others successful. We may never be foreign missionaries, but our prayers may open doors for missionaries around the world. By prayer we partner with God's people everywhere, and we do that even though we never leave our home. By prayer I can minister in Bangladesh even though I've never set foot there. By prayer I can become a world traveler even though I may be homebound. By prayer I can traverse the oceans, enter closed nations, visit the courts of distant monarchs, and travel the dusty trails of far-off lands. Church, prayer is not limited. So as we move forward, Paul will address our witness. He's going to talk to us now about how do you talk to people about God. Because the Christian life is about prayer, but it's also putting those prayers into action. So let's read Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. The text says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now you'll notice here that Christian witness happens through actions and through words. Actions and words must never be divorced from one another. You can think of it like this. It's unlikely that a person will come to know Jesus, no matter how much you tell them about him, if your actions don't back up your words. And in the same way, it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do towards a person, if you never get to the point of sharing the gospel with them, how are they going to trust Christ? Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So then we need to consider here verses five and six, how to act, how to speak. Let's begin with how to act. Notice that Paul's concern here is that Christians walk in wisdom towards outsiders. An outsider is someone who has not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. The New Living Translation would actually just say, someone who doesn't believe. The question is, is how do you live in such a way to help someone who is on the outside come into the inside? That should ever be on the church's mind. We want more people on the outside coming inside to know Jesus. Now, I've noticed that churches, unless they're very intentional, have a natural tendency and a drift towards being inward-focused, not outward-focused. We become cloistered off. When engaging the world becomes hard, we pull back. We feel more at ease grumbling about how people are moving away from God than we do talking to people about the God that they are moving away from. And this is why Paul says, make the best use of your time. It's a call to intentionality. It's a call to avoid the tendency to just let life happen. Rather, he's saying to us, weigh your choices, weigh your decisions, weigh where you're at, and ask the question, how will what I am doing help people come to know Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why am I here? And I'm not asking that in the existential uh, sense of the word, but why did God not just immediately take me up to heaven? It's not because I need to get a little bit better, right? Because if we made our way through the book of Colossians, we're seeing that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. 
Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So it can't be that. So why am I here? Well, it's because we have a mission to fulfill. We are called to attract more people to Jesus. We are his plan A and there's no plan B. So how do we do this? Maybe you're familiar with the the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a great little parable, isn't it? If you're not familiar with that parable, I encourage you, go home today and read Luke chapter 10 and make yourself familiar with it. Now, I want to consider a couple of principles from this parable together. This is what wise living looks like. Uh, The first thing we see is that wisdom sees the need and stops. I love the fact that the Good Samaritan stopped. I mean, how many people passed by? But he sees the need and he stops. He's obviously going somewhere. He obviously had something on his mind to do. But the Christian, the wise Christian, is willing to reschedule a busy day in order to meet a need. They have a real sense of what the real priority is. How I wish more Christians would stop. I wonder how many opportunities we miss because our mind is on the to-do list. I know I've missed plenty. And the sad thing is often my to-do list involves church. Second thing that we see there is that wisdom shows compassion. He was willing to touch bloody wounds. He took a bloody, mangled body and placed it upon his donkey. He didn't say, ill, that's disgusting, I'm not going to touch that. He saw the man in need and he took pity on him. Do you know how many people are in need in this world? There are people that are living a quiet loneliness and desperation and they're living two doors away from you and they're not going to ever come to you and tell you that they're dealing with that. We put up a good front, don't we? Like everything's okay. But it's not okay. I love this Chick-fil-A video called Every Life Has a Story. Uh, They use it to train employees to be gracious towards people who are coming into the store. Now when you're following it, the camera goes around the room and it shows various people being served in the store. And as it moves through, there's two scripts running. There's a visible script where you see the person in the store and how they're conducting themselves. But there's also this invisible script that appears on the screen. This is what they're going through in life. So one man looks stressed out in the line and the invisible script tells us what's going on, fired from his job and is worried how he's going to provide for his family. Another shot shows a mom with two boys and they're rambunctious and they're fighting over each other and the invisible script says, single mom raising a family alone and trying to make ends meet. There's an image of this cute little girl. She's adorable. And she's walking by and she's smiling. And I'll tell you, that smile could just hang with you. And the invisible script says, mom died during childbirth and dad blames her. Every person has a story. 
Every story matters to God, and as Christians, those stories should matter to us, but it's easy to overlook the need. It requires us to lift our eyes up so that we can see, to turn our ears so that we can hear, to open up our hearts so that we feel. Thirdly, wisdom meets needs generously. The Good Samaritan essentially wrote a blank check. He said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. John Piper says of wisdom, wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want. Couldn't say it better than that how to act, how to speak. Verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how you ought to answer each person. Only after acting do we talk. Gracious means conversations overflowing with kindness. It's the idea of your witness being as charming as possible without crossing over into the territory of compromise. There is this balancing act in the Christian witness where we must both be pointed and pleasant. And you can easily miss the balance. Some people care only for the truth and they don't care about the person sitting across the table from them. I remember my dad told me of a man who came to Christ despite the fact that someone held a lighter to his face and said, are you ready to go here? Terrible strategy. Terribly uncaring towards a person. But at the same time, others are so afraid of sounding offensive or pushy that they end up diluting the truth and fail to articulate the realities of sin, death, and hell. So some things to avoid. Don't be holier thou than thou or preachy. That offends me. It offends everyone. Don't use cliches. Don't treat evangelism like it's a sales opportunity. Don't act like you're reading a script. Hello, sir or ma'am. I am here today to tell you about Jesus. (laughs) Don't feel pressured like you have to seal the deal. Paul says here, and I think he envisions here, this ongoing relational dynamic where you're using gracious words, you're using savory words. What does savory mean? It, it means that it's not dull, that it's vibrant, that there's a life and vitality to it, that you're talking to people about Jesus from the heart because you know him. Howard Hendricks used to say this. He's a former Dallas theological uh, seminary professor. He said, according to the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's true, but you can feed them a lot of salt. Do you talk to people in a way that makes them long for the spiritual truth that you know? Do you make people spiritually thirsty? I remember hearing a woman in my Sunday school class share the story of how she came to know Jesus. We'll just call her Karen. Ironically, Karen was out evangelizing when she first really started to search for Jesus. She was out with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were going door to door to pass out literature and to have conversations with people. Now, at one of the houses, Karen was greeted by a young woman who had just recently given her life to Christ, and she was enthused about what had happened. 
Well, the more Karen and her associate questioned this woman, the more she would just simply say, look, I can't answer every question that you're asking me, but the one thing I can tell you is I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I know that when I trusted him, the peace that has come over me has been like anything I've ever experienced in this life. Does your religion provide you with the same peace? Back and forth. Back and forth. And this woman would speak from this overflowing well of joy. Well, Karen went home, and that conversation haunted her for days. The more she thought about the woman's demeanor, the more she rolled those words through her mind, the more she could honestly say, I don't have that. I don't have anything close to that. I need to give this Jesus a second look. And over time, Karen came to trust Christ as her Savior. One encounter with a gracious, savory Christian set her on a journey that ultimately led her to trust Christ and to find that peace that she had been missing her whole life. Who is Jesus, church? That's the question we've been asking, isn't it? And I've got to tell you, if you don't have some kind of a response at this point, you need to fire me and look for a new senior pastor because we're going to be in big trouble, aren't we? Now, we noted that we must have an answer to this question. Everything depends on how you answer this question. Who is Jesus? Well, Colossians tells us Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is God's greatest gift. Jesus is first in all things. Jesus is the treasury of God's wisdom. Jesus is the better philosophy. Jesus is the better religion. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our power to defeat sin. Jesus is our power to love. Jesus is the key to relationships in life. Jesus is the ultimate communication of God. Jesus was and still is the very fullness of God. So what should our response be to this? Our best response to this message of the book of Colossians is to let it transform our hearts and set the agenda for our mission. Our best response to this is to be the worshiping, transformational, missional church that Jesus Christ would have us be all for the sake of his glory. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?